From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, July 3rd. I'm Aaron Schechter. Three top executives at Barclays are now gone, including the bank's American CEO. The scandal at Barclays could also affect U.S. cities and corporations. One class action lawsuit could be worth billions. This probably is just the tip of the iceberg because our complaint is one that's filed in the United States. We are looking at cases and working with law firms around the world. And later, Guatemala's president wants to decriminalize drugs amid rising drug-related violence in his country, plus taking the high out of pot in Israel. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The chief executive of Barclays Bank, one of Britain's biggest companies, abruptly stepped down today. Bob Diamond's resignation comes less than a week after Barclays paid a $450 million fine. The penalty was imposed by regulators after Barclays was found to have illegally manipulated interbank lending rates. Today, Barclays tried to blame the manipulation on a misunderstanding between its executives and the Bank of England. Tomorrow, Diamond will be asked about that by a parliamentary committee. Over the years, Bob Diamond hasn't kept his big salary, big bonus, and big ego under wraps. His brash attitude seemed to reflect the values Barclays itself celebrated in this 12-year-old ad featuring actor Anthony Hopkins. I get up in the morning, I want a big breakfast. I want my girlfriend to say, good morning, big boy, to which I'll reply, I've got a big day today, big meeting with a big cheese from a big studio. It's a big time for the big bucks. And she'll turn to me, rolling up big blue eyes, and say, big head. Alistair Heath is the editor of the big London business paper, City AM. Alistair, as we heard in that somewhat dated ad, Barclays Bank touted big as its key brand value, and chief executive Bob Diamond was perhaps Mr. Big. Remind us of who Bob Diamond is, if you would. Bob Diamond's a very interesting figure, a very interesting character for someone who is was, until very recently, the chief executive of Barclays, one of Britain's oldest and most famous banks. He's American. He's self-made. He was an academic originally. He's got a PhD. And he decided to go into banking. And he climbed all the way to the top and became one of the world's most powerful and most successful investment bankers, helping to build Barclays Capital, the investment banking division of Barclays, into one of the most successful in the world. And he famously masterminded the acquisition in America of Lehman Brothers US operations after Lehman Brothers went bust. Bob Diamond transformed its culture, made it much more buccaneering, much more entrepreneurial. A lot of his values are what uh, Brits and Europeans see as typically American values. He was a workaholic, he was very dedicated, very driven, and wanted to win and defeat the competition. Is it possible that that, uh, Mr. Diamond and Barclays Bank got a bit too big? To me, it's not a size question. There was a terrible, disastrous and scandalous rigging of one of the key interest rates set in London 
uh, something called LIBOR. It's the, the rate at which banks lend money to each other. And millions of contracts all over the world are based on that rate. It's a very important uh, measure all over the world in, in, for the financial markets. And it's now emerged that Barclays, as well as a number of other banks from all over the world, were engaged in rigging the price of that interest rate. And Barclays was the first to settle with the US and UK authorities. So they settled last week and paid a large fine. And that's what's precipitated Bob Diamond's resignation as chief executive today. So there's a massive problem here at the heart of the financial establishment because all of these banks allowed or failed to control some of their traders who manipulated interest rates. In the case of Barclays, they manipulated interest rates for financial gain. And they also uh, manipulated interest rates to try and make themselves look safer and sounder. And here in the UK, this is turning into a major scandal, which uh, is much larger than merely a scandal about one bank, but is a scandal that is starting to affect uh, large parts of the establishment, including the central bank, the regulators and the government. Alistair Heath, there will be a hearing tomorrow in uh, Parliament with the Treasury Committee. Mr. Diamond will be there. He is one of the UK's highest paid executives and, as you say, an American. I wonder if that will create quite a conflagration tomorrow. It will. I mean, to me, this is going to be the most spectacular bust-up and confrontation between politicians and business leaders uh, that we've seen for a very long time, if ever. It's going to be even bigger, probably, in terms of political theatre than the recent confrontations between uh, MPs and Rupert Murdoch and his son, James Murdoch. That's um, a pretty big deal. That's a big thing to say. It's a very big deal and a very big thing to say. You know, this is explosive. This in involves clear breaches of the rules. And Bob Diamond's a much more abrasive character. And it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. The financial mess in 2008 went back and forth across the Atlantic. Is this a scandal that will touch on the United States or other countries as well? Uh, probably because banks from several other countries are undoubtedly involved in this. And ultimately, it's only because of American pressure and investigations that this scandal was actually prosecuted in the end. I suspect that had the Americans not stepped in, no one would have done anything about this. So clearly, this is very much also an American issue. Alistair Heath is the editor of the London business newspaper City AM. Alistair, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It should be said that the Barclays, that Barclays Bank is willingly cooperating with those investigating the scandal. The bank is trying to ward off a prosecution. The names of other banks also thought to be involved haven't been made public in Britain. The effects of this scandal are already being felt here in the U.S. The city of Baltimore is among those joining a class action lawsuit against Barclays for potential losses. Hillary Scherer is a Washington, D.C.-based lawyer involved in the suit. She says the market for the financial products affected by this banking scandal is huge, and so are the potential losses. The market has been reported to be in the trillions of dollars. We've seen anywhere from 400 to $450 trillion. Um, and those are financial instruments that are indexed to LIBOR, which is this interest rate that many banks often use. Where does this fall for your clients? Billions of dollars, too? Potentially for our clients, we are looking at millions and billions of dollars of losses. We haven't done those calculations yet, um, and we're looking at this on a class-wide basis as well. So uh, when you've got a market that's made up of trillions of dollars, even minute manipulations of that market can have uh, billions of dollars of impact. Now, I realize this is a big, complicated issue, but if we could, in simple terms, how did your clients say they lost money? The city of Baltimore and others that are represented in the suit 
entered into financial transactions to manage their interest rate risk, their exposure when interest rates either rose or fall. The defendant banks were manipulating downward, which resulted in more cash staying in their coffers and not ending up in the coffers of cities, municipalities, and corporate entities. Is this kind of an investment insurance? Uh, Yeah, I think you can call it insurance. It's to manage that risk of interest rates changing dramatically. So in essence, the insurance company was mucking about with the rates. I think that's a fair way of saying it, yes. Is there any way to know exactly who was hurt, when and how? We have a complaint that has a fair amount of economic analysis. And based on our analysis, it appears that it was manipulated down. Uh, Our clients are those that would have been hurt by downward manipulations in those interest rates. This scandal has led to senior resignations at Barclays, um, but I wonder if you think this is just the start of yet another banking crisis and, and that more companies will be found to have been involved. Well, our understanding is there are certainly ongoing investigations in the United States as well as by other authorities around the world. So there, I think, will be more news to come on this. Uh, Whether that rises to the level of a banking crisis, I'm not sure. Um, But I certainly do think that this is a wide-ranging rate-fixing scandal. It seems like this is a big, big deal. Yeah, I, I and, and I think this probably is just the tip of the iceberg because our complaint is one that's filed in the United States. We are looking at cases and working with law firms around the world. So I think this is just the beginning of the litigation. Antitrust legislation in the U.S. makes any compensation claim quite astronomical uh, compared to the United Kingdom. As you say, the potential payout here could be billions, but I imagine the lawsuit would drag on for quite a while. When we have entities that are making admissions to government regulators, that certainly helps our case. Um, These types of litigations do notoriously go on for a long time, but we're hopeful that this is a strong case and it will move quickly through the court system. Hilary Shearer is one of the lawyers involved in a class action lawsuit against Barclays and other banks on behalf of cities, corporations and other clients here in the U.S., When it comes to banking in Europe, Switzerland used to have a sparkling reputation with American customers. A Swiss bank account used to guarantee absolute secrecy until the U.S. Justice Department started going after tax dodgers. Now the changes Swiss banks have made in response may affect some unlikely Americans. From Zurich, Tony Ganser reports. Catherine moved to Switzerland from Ohio in 2008 to be an au pair. The U.S. was in the middle of its financial crisis, and she figured, why not? First order of business in Zurich, get a bank account. I had gone to, I think it was UBS at the first time, and they had said that they didn't offer any bank accounts to Americans who had less than $250,000. My boyfriend at the time and I just laughed at that, like... She has to have a bank account. You know, she's going to be living here. Catherine was ultimately granted a young person's account at UBS. She has asked that her last name not be used for fear it might hurt her financial options because now years later, the graphic designer and her husband are having account troubles again, trying to get a mortgage. We got so far along in the mortgage process that people were telling us it was a good idea to buy. And then it was only literally right before we were going to sign the contract that we were finding out, wait a minute, she's American, this is a red flag, this is a problem. It seems to be very haphazard. 
David Kinsey is the founding partner at Toon Financial Advisors in Madison, Wisconsin, serving Americans abroad. I've heard stories where on the client withdrawing money, doing a transfer, was told, oh, your movement of money prompted us to do a review of your account, and we realize you're an American, and uh, we want you to leave. Kinsey says the Swiss banks are reacting to U.S. investigators trying to catch the rich in what is often vilified as a tax haven. But they're also reacting to U.S. legislation called FATCA, or the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. It will, beginning next year, require foreign banks to automatically send the IRS information on American clients, presumably to find tax evaders easier. To go around and use the weight of your financial and political power to enforce in an extraterritorial way that banks around the world act as tax agents for the U.S. government is preposterous. Banks have become increasingly aware of the fact that having U.S. clients often means to be in non-compliance with U.S. regulation, and banks are becoming increasingly uh, riskerous in that sense. Manuel Amman is director of the Swiss Institute of Banking and Finance. He says besides the possible legal problems, FATCA costs Swiss banks money. So most banks, with the exception of a few large or specialized ones, are simply dumping American clients. The Swiss Bank of American Mythology as a place to stash large sums probably won't change all that much for the super-rich in the short term. Most of the assets now affected are relatively small savings or investment accounts and mortgages. But Amman says with more and more regulation, cross-border business will be increasingly tricky for banks to handle, and the entire banking industry is taking a hard look at the good and bad of its future. Swiss banks still have a number of advantages to them, you know, so from a competitive point of view, I'm not pessimistic with respect to Swiss banking in general, but the regulatory framework definitely becomes increasingly difficult. And that means no one, not regulators, bank officials, or clients, knows exactly what Swiss banking will look like when the dust finally settles. For The World, I'm Tony Ganser in Zurich. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Guatemala neither produces nor consumes large amounts of illegal drugs, but the Central American nation has become a busy hub for traffickers sending Colombian cocaine north to the U.S. That's led to a spike in violence and corruption in Guatemala, similar to the one in Mexico. To counter it, Guatemala's president wants to decriminalize drugs. John Otis has more on that from Guatemala City. At the police academy in Guatemala City, young cadets march and sing patriotic songs. Many of these trainees will go on to serve in Guatemala's anti-drug police force. The force has its hands full. Mexico's most powerful drug cartel, the Setas, have moved in and are battling over territory with Guatemalan drug gangs. 
Gregorio Aguilar is deputy director of the anti-drug police. Ellos están cobrando vidas humanas. He says the Zetas are responsible for numerous massacres. The violence has helped give Guatemala the world's sixth highest homicide rate, according to the UN. But rather than ratcheting up the war on drugs, Guatemalan President Otto Pérez wants to tone it down. Pérez is a former Guatemalan army general, so his talk of liberalizing drug laws may sound jarring. But Pérez tells me it was his time in the military fighting traffickers that convinced him the drug war can't be won. Y hoy que vengo a recibir la presidencia, 20 años después encuentro que los carteles están más grandes. Now that I'm president, the cartels are stronger, richer, and they have more guns. We have not been successful, so I believe we must look for alternatives. Pérez says decriminalizing drugs could eliminate the profits, violence, and corruption surrounding the industry, similar to the end of alcohol prohibition in the U.S. His position has taken many Guatemalans by surprise, but it's raised Pérez's profile, says political analyst Lorena Escobar. He wants to be a leader in the region and to make other presidents think about it. And that's exactly what they're doing. In Uruguay, where smoking marijuana is already legal, the government last month announced that it plans to begin selling the drug as a way to undermine street dealers. At the Summit of the Americas in April, many countries came out in favor of scrapping the U.S.-led drug war. Argentina said it. Uruguay said it. Ecuador said it. Colombia said it. Venezuela said it. Costa Rica said it. That's Fernando Carrera, Guatemala's planning secretary. He's in charge of studying alternative drug policies. His first decision was to reject Mexico's military offensive against the cartels, which has produced massive bloodshed and little progress. Yet U.S. officials urged Guatemala to follow Mexico's example. So they came to Guatemala saying, well, see Mexico, they're doing great. But if something is well known today in the world is that Mexico is not doing great, okay? President Pérez has suggested that countries create a legal framework for the production, transit, and consumption of drugs. Carrera is studying options like the controlled sales of cocaine and marijuana, similar to the way wine and whiskey are sold in liquor stores. And I think that's where we are today. I think what he's saying is basically, bring me ideas and bring me studies. But turning ideas into laws will take years. Like most nations, Guatemala signed a 1961 UN treaty outlawing heroin, cocaine, and marijuana. Until that treaty is modified, countries are stuck with a legal framework demanding they take a hard line. So, even in reform-minded nations like Guatemala, a limited version of the drug war grinds on. Agents register bales of marijuana and blocks of cocaine. The drugs will then be hauled away and burned. But tons of narcotics pass through Guatemala every year, and the warehouse is nearly always full. For The World, I'm John Otis, Guatemala City. Here in the U.S., more than a dozen states allow the medicinal use of marijuana. Of course, that's still controversial because medical pot still makes people high. But what if the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana, the chemical known as THC, could be removed? That's exactly what an Israeli company says it's managed to do. Here's the world's Matthew Bell. 
It was an Israeli scientist who first isolated tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, back in 1964. Now, an Israeli company claims to be the first to develop a strain of the cannabis plant that contains almost no THC at all. The company is called Tikkun Olam, which means healing the world in Hebrew. It grows cannabis in Israel and runs the only legal storefront dispensary in the country. There's no sign outside to identify the small shop in downtown Tel Aviv, but the unmistakable smell of marijuana wafts out onto the sidewalk as customers come and go. Medical marijuana has been legal in Israel for more than 10 years. It's tightly controlled, and about 9,000 people in Israel have a license to buy it. 60-year-old Avi, a cancer survivor, is one of them. I had a concert for six years, and afterwards, when I start to take cannabis, now four years, I don't have nothing. The pot might not have cured his cancer, but Avi tells me smoking it helped him get through the chemo treatments. A few weeks ago, he says he started smoking the new strain called CBD, which doesn't have the intoxicating effects of most cannabis. You've tried the CBD, and what do you you think? I take it during the day. It doesn't make me down, you see? It doesn't go to sleep. I can work with it, I can walk with it, I can do everything with the CBD. With the other one, it's a bit uh, different because it uh, makes your uh, muscles down. And and you get high, obviously. get high, that's right. So for you, it's good? (laughs) For me, it's the best. (laughs) The new cannabis strain took about three years to develop through crossbreeding. It's only been available for a few weeks. So far, the company says there are about 10 regular users, but it's showing some promising results. Tikkun Olam's Mayan Weisberg says it's helping people who suffer from infections or nausea but don't want to get high. Some of our patients, uh, the THC bothers them. It, It stops them from having a normal day. They want to be alert. They want to, you know, have a very strong grasp of reality if they deal with banks and banking and all sorts of numbers and information. And some people just don't enjoy the lack of control that the THC can can make you feel. So this is a good alternative for them. But Weisberg says the new strain will not cut it for all medical marijuana users. Pain patients and patients that are used to narcotics... They need the THC. If there's no THC in the cannabis, they don't benefit from, for the pain relief and for the, the stress that their body is dealing with. And that's how one longtime cannabis advocate says he feels, standing outside the cannabis dispensary with a plastic shopping bag full of cannabis. David Harari tells me that medical marijuana has long helped him cope with the effects of Parkinson's disease, like the uncontrollable shaking. Like this. Like this. When the shaking starts, Harari says smoking a little cannabis makes it stop. And he says it's the THC that helps him. So he doesn't have much interest in trying this new type of cannabis. Tikkun Olam says it's getting inquiries from cannabis growers abroad, including in the U.S., but international collaboration would be tough because with or without THC, Marijuana is still a controlled substance. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Tel Aviv. Still ahead, the student movement in Mexico tries to remain relevant after the elections. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead on The World, the lack of sex education in some parts of Africa and its consequences. It is quite shocking 
when you speak to a 16 year old girl who tells you that she had sex it was unprotected sex but she had no idea that she would get pregnant PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. For most of history, death in childbirth was a serious risk every time a woman got pregnant. Thankfully, that's far less often the case today, but certainly not everywhere. One of the countries with the highest risk of death during pregnancy or childbirth is Liberia. And one of the reasons for that is the tradition of women having children at a very young age, when they're really still just girls. The BBC's Sarah Montague went to meet some of these girls, and we should warn you, what they told her can be hard to listen to. I'm in the village of Sanoye in Bong County, outside the health clinic here, which is a small building, just a matter of rooms. Outside, a very long queue of people, mainly women, many of them with children and many of them obviously pregnant. I'm with Save the Children's project manager, George Kijana. Should we go inside? So, George, we've got a room full of women here, all on benches. What's going on in this room? This is a screening room. As you can see here, they present their small little cards. The card is used by the registrar to identify their... In one of the back rooms, there's a sight that brings you up short. A child, heavily pregnant. Beside her, another 13-year-old cradling her newborn. It seems shocking, but it's a common sight here. A third of all babies are born to girls between the ages of 15 and 19. Their families expect it, but their young bodies struggle to cope. 13-year-old Gormo is due any day. You are nine months pregnant, and you are about to have a baby. Are you excited? Yeah. Are you glad that you are going to have a baby? Yeah. Because you are very young, and I wonder if you would prefer to be a bit older. Because I see my friends getting. You saw your friends getting pregnant, and you wanted to get pregnant too? Yeah. Annie, tell me about Mary. First of all, how old is she? Two months. She's two months. She's just tiny, and she's not, she's. You brought her here because she's not very well. You brought her here to get some medicine. Yeah. How old were you when you got pregnant? I was twelve. You were twelve. Yeah. And you're now thirteen. Would you like to have another baby? No. Why not? You want to go back to school. Yeah. What do you want to do when you finish school? I'll <laughs> cry. You want to be an ambulance driver? Yeah. George Kijana, you at Save the Children see an awful lot of very young girls getting pregnant. What are the problems for them? Well, the problem is, you know, when they get pregnant at that young age, they're predisposed to a lot of complications that are related to pregnancy, complications that are related to delivery, majority of them end up with permanent disability or, or they actually die. And this is problems because they are just too young, their bodies aren't ready to carry a baby? Correct, correct. Tell me what the problems are for a 15-year-old, which is really quite typical for somebody to get pregnant. The body is not ready, so the birth canal, where the baby is supposed to come out, 
is narrow. So if they go to, into labor, they're likely to get into what we call prolonged labor, labor lasting for many hours. Then that has complications. Either the uterus can rupture and they will die if they're not rushed to the also immediately, or they can actually develop what we call fistula because of prolonged labor. They, you know, they, there could be a rupture between the rect rectum and the birth canal or a rupture between the urinary bladder and the birth canal. And both of them would lead to what called fistula. This is an opening between the rectum and the birth canal or between the bladder and the birth canal. What happens to these girls after they've had some complications? Are they accepted back into their communities? Many of them are accepted, but I mean they live with a stigma and the possibility that they may not get married because even if the fistula is repaired, it's, it's a stigma. It sometimes continues to have the leakage um, you know, leakage incontinence. Yes, so that has stigma because then scares away potential husband. It means probably they have to live permanently with their, their parents. I've come to Phoebe Hospital in Bong County. We're after surgery to fix the damage of having babies so young. The girls can come to the fistula centre here and learn a trade. It's a small compound tucked away where they learn how to sew, read, bake bread, and tie dye. Mama, tell me why you came here. What happened to you? I was sick. Fatu Gate from Save the Children explained to me what happened to Mama. She was pregnant, but then in the process, she went into coma for three days. When she came out, she stayed long in the hospital. Then they noticed that she had this fistula. So what happened though when she went home? When she went home, according to her, her friends rejected her. Her family members rejected her. Only her grandmother used to be nearby to help her. How do they reject her? In what way? They what? They won't take food from her. They she won't. She said nobody could come around her. Nobody want to speak to her. Nobody want to eat from her. That's why she started to cry when she when she started to ask me. And then, Mama, will you go back to your family and will they welcome you? Yeah, because I cured now. Because you're cured now. Yeah. And do you, how do you feel about that? I feel fine. Because when my family, when I run out of me, me stay alone. She still has love for her family. She will still go back to them. Even though they rejected her, but she will still go back. Even though they rejected you, you'll go back because you love them. That report was from the BBC Sarah Montague in Liberia. Of course, Liberia isn't the only place where it's common for very young women to become pregnant and give birth, or where complications and even death in childbirth are common. Agnes Odiambo is a women's rights researcher for Human Rights Watch based in Nairobi, Kenya. She says the stories from Liberia are all too familiar. Very familiar. Teenage pregnancy is an issue of pandemic proportions in Africa. What is happening in Liberia is not very unique to Liberia. It's a problem that we are facing in very many countries in Africa. And why is this an issue that you are so focused on with with all the issues of women's rights in Africa? Well, first of all, it's because that teenage pregnancy is really an issue that has very serious negative consequences for girls, for the development of communities, and for the development of countries. If I can just talk a little bit about the health aspects. Young girls who get pregnant, they have a higher chance of getting obstructed labor, which can cause death of the mother and the infant, or it can lead to, for example, obstetric fistula, which really is a devastating injury. 
Now, given those grim statistics, there is some good news. Just in May, the U.N. reported that the number of deaths worldwide due to pregnancy or birth decreased by almost 50 percent over the past 20 years. That is good news, no? Well, it is good news, but still the news is not very good in Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, where most countries have made very little progress or no progress at all. And even within sub-Saharan Africa, the differences are huge. So still it is a major problem. And what are some examples of the national differences between the countries? So, for example, the recent statistics show that in Africa, only three countries are on track to reduce maternal deaths by 75 percent between 1990 and 2015. And that is Egypt, Cape Verde, and I believe Eritrea. You've got about 20 countries that are making some progress, and then the rest of the countries have made insufficient progress or no progress at all. In Kenya, for example, the number has gone up. In South Africa, the same case, the number has gone up. What is the root of this problem? Is it education? Is it social? Is it a lack of money? Where does this come from? It's a whole host of things, really, that contribute to maternal mortality. You have to look at it from the problems that women face right from when they are girls. So we are looking at issues of lack of sexuality education for young girls so that teenage pregnancy is very high. There are also harmful traditional practices such as early marriage, where in very many African cultures uh, it is okay for a girl to get married the moment she reaches puberty, then poverty is a big problem. Poverty in the sense that women are not able to access health care, governments are not providing adequate health care. Now, from an American perspective, a lot of what you have found is, is shocking, frankly, the age at which girls are giving birth and getting married. Is there anything that you've found especially shocking when you've gone out to do the interviews that you've done? Oh, there are quite a number of shocking things. It is quite shocking when you speak to a 16-year-old girl who tells you that she got pregnant, but she had no idea she would get pregnant. She had sex, it was unprotected sex, but she had no idea that she would get pregnant, you know. So that's quite sad for me as an African woman as well. And then it's also really shocking to find 12-year-old girls, as I found in South Sudan, who are already married and with children. And the society does not see anything wrong with that. In fact, this is encouraged in their societies. The younger you get married, the better, because then they believe you can produce more children. But ironically, it is the same childbearing process that is killing these women and children, and we really don't think that is a serious issue. Agnes Odiambo is a researcher on women's rights in Africa for New York-based Human Rights Watch. Ms. Odiambo, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me. In Mexico, tensions are rising ahead of the release tomorrow of official results from Sunday's presidential vote. The preliminary count shows a victory for Enrique Peña Nieto and a return to power after 12 years for his Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. But the man who came in second isn't conceding. Andres Manuel López Obrador says he may challenge the results. He did that six years ago, putting the outcome of Mexico's last presidential vote in doubt for months. This time around, he says he won't go that far. A call for transparency in the official vote count is also coming from student protesters in Mexico, as Miles Esty reports from Mexico City. 
The Yo Soy 132 movement's original goal was to oppose Enrique Peña Nieto as the pre-candidate and denounce the media's alleged bias in his favor. Now, they have to figure out what to do next. They started to do that on election day. Late Sunday, when the official preliminary results came out and Peña Nieto's victory began to look certain, some of the movement's founders were gathered in a room at Mexico City's Ibero-American University. <laughs> Disappointment quickly turned to discussion. The students debated until 4 a.m. They finally decided to attend a large protest march the next day to say they do not support Peña Nieto. They also decided they will not contest the election results. Instead, they will submit some of the election irregularities that they've documented to officials. In Guerrero, in Tierra Caliente Guerrero, people from La Familia Michoacana, which is a, a drug cartel, uh, kidnapped some... Sandro Patargo has a list of these irregularities. She says 3,000 people associated with Yo Soy 132 worked as observers on election day, and they've been feeding this information to her from around the country. A lot of people were beaten by, by other people. They were buying votes. This is very, very frequent in Mexico. Like the students recognize taking the movement past elections won't be easy. The original protest was based at the Ibero-American University, but it's since expanded to campuses all over Mexico. A wider membership could complicate decision-making about what the goal should be now. But law student Leon Castante says there are lots of core issues to keep the movement going, even if the students did not succeed in preventing the pre's return to power. We have a lot of agenda that would not be resolved no matter who was elected. Because ha having a country that's so relevant in the economic map, being so backwards in media and being so backwards in, in freedom of speech, it's just unacceptable. And we will not accept this. And, and for at least freedom of speech, freedom of media, and f civil rights in, in general. Leon also thinks that the movement has changed the political atmosphere of Mexico, no matter who won the presidency. Mexico has been sleeping for 35 years. And I think that's also what's been so exciting about this movement, like seeing people that have always been like politically not active or, or just indifferent. I definitely think that uh, we have changed the playing grounds for Mexican pol politics. Back on election night, student Ignacio Martinez's face fell as the results began to show a pre-victory was inevitable. But even then, he was confident that there is a path forward. He says it's just what this path looks like that still needs deciding. I don't know how it's going to look like in a couple of months. I couldn't even say in a couple of years. But uh, what I know is that uh, in La, La Ibero will not cease to protest and will not cease to, to make uh, projects to, to wake up the conscience of, of people and uh, to make it clear that the PRI is a party that is going to damage our country. Whether that means the Yo Soy 132 movement continues as a watchdog, a more formal opposition group, or something altogether different remains to be seen. For now... The students are staying focused on election results and demanding a more transparent count. For The World, I'm Miles Esty in Mexico City. You can find our ongoing coverage of Mexico's elections at theworld.org. If you heard yesterday's GeoQuiz, you'll know the answer was France. Well, today we're looking for a part of France. The country is divided up into administrative regions called departments. Each has its own number. 
The one in question today is number one, which is a clue. It's at the start of the alphabet. Another clue, it's just across the Swiss border from Geneva and its suburbs. That's where you'll find the European Organization for Nuclear Research, also called CERN. Tomorrow, scientists at CERN are expected to announce a big discovery. We'll hear about that and name the neighboring French department just ahead. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Detectives Lewis and Hathaway are back on the case, battling a crime wave in the academic haven of Oxford, England. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central, on PBS. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Tomorrow morning could bring the biggest news in physics in decades. An announcement is scheduled at the European Nuclear Research Facility known as CERN, which is home to the atom smasher called the Large Hadron Collider. It sits on the border between Switzerland and the part of France we were looking for in our geo-quiz. The answer is the French department of AIN, spelled A-I-N, AIN. Now, back to the news. Tomorrow, scientists at CERN will say if they've discovered an elusive subatomic particle— It's officially called the Higgs boson, but informally, it's been dubbed the God particle. Journalist Ian Sample has written about the international race to find the Higgs boson. His book is titled Massive, the Missing Particle that Sparked the Greatest Hunt in Science. Ian, you're in London, but I understand you're about to head to Geneva for the announcement. First off, do we know what the team in Geneva will say? All of the suggestions seem to point in the same direction, which is that they will probably come out and say, we've seen something in our experiments that looks very much like a Higgs boson. I think other scientists will say it's pretty much there apart from the paperwork. It's, I, I think they're going to be close enough that confirmation will be something of a formality. OK, let's back up for a moment. What is this thing? Well, the Higgs boson is really um, just a particle that is associated with a field, and it's the field that's interesting. It would be something new that we didn't know was there, and its role is to give the really basic particles, the basic building blocks of matter, their weight. And if they don't have weight, they move around at the speed of light, and you don't have planets or stars or life. Now, as you say, in order to find the Higgs boson particle, scientists smash atoms together at extremely high speeds in these particle accelerators. This is a huge cost for this thing, isn't it? Yeah, but it's uh, there's an interesting thing that happens here, and it's somewhat driven by the sort of the PR that comes out of CERN and also by the, the rest of, of the media where we sort of we leap on the Higgs boson as the, uh, the, the, the sole reason for the Large Hadron Collider. Now, it's true that the Large Hadron Collider was built with the Higgs particle in mind. But it's not true that that's all it's about. You, you've talked about CERN, the, the CERN lab there in uh, Switzerland. Scientists on this side of the Atlantic at Fermilab outside Chicago have also been searching for the Higgs particle and, and doing some of the other work you mentioned. Uh, and in fact, just yesterday, they announced that they've come tantalizingly close to confirming that the particle exists. Uh, if the European team tomorrow says that they have indeed found it. Is that a win for Europe, a loss for the United States? If, if CERN say they pretty much got this particle, I think it will undoubtedly, just by um, dint of geography, be seen as a success for Europe. 
But the US have been paying an awful lot of money into the LHC and into CERN because they realize that that is really where the game is at. And if they're not involved in CERN at a greater level, um, then they really are out of the game. Well, given that, uh, and aside from the, the lovely media quality of it all, why is it called the God Particle? Well, this was really um, something that came about in 1993 when um, much of the uh, disappointment, I think, of a lot of physicists, it was the director of Fermilab, um, home of the Tevatron near Chicago, um, who wrote a book on the Higgs boson, which he called the God Particle. And it really came about from his publisher looking for um, some other phrase in the Higgs boson to put on the cover. So it was a marketing stunt, but the name stuck. And the the director of Fermilab was a Nobel Prize winner, an incredibly accomplished physicist in his own right. So, you know, a Nobel physicist names a particle, the God particle. It probably does have a certain uh, media attraction to it, more so than the Higgs boson. Um, (laughs) And the media ran with it. Physicists have hated it ever since. Ian Sample is a science journalist for the British newspaper The Guardian. He wrote a book about the Higgs boson. It's called Massive, the Missing Particle that Sparked the Greatest Hunt in Science. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find out a lot more about the Higgs boson from our partners at the PBS program NOVA, and you can watch scientists make their announcement live from Geneva. We've got links at theworld.org. It's been quite a year for the Russian opposition. There have been record-breaking demonstrations, and they continue this summer. In spite of new tough anti-protest rules, some members of the Russian opposition are planning a nationwide demonstration at the end of the month. There's also now a soundtrack to this revolution, a collection of tracks donated by musicians and artists who have rallied with the opposition. The White Album contains more than 200 songs. Its title refers to the Beatles' 1968 opus, which carried songs like Back in the USSR. This Russian White Album is the brainchild of Vasily Shumov, a music producer, and Artemy Troitsky, a well-known music journalist. Both also appear in some of the songs. Here's Troitsky with the band Vivisector. The album is a project for artists who want to make demands on Putin's government, including the release of political prisoners. Three of those political prisoners are members of the punk band Pussy Riot. The now-notorious band raised the ire of the church and the Kremlin when they sang an anti-Putin song in Moscow's largest Orthodox cathedral earlier this year. They've been jailed since April. The rapper Siava contributed a song to the White Album dedicated to Pussy Riot. There are also celebrities featured on the album. Ksenia Sobchak is a well-known TV anchor and opposition figure. Sobchak joined the movement last December, and recently her apartment was raided by police. In this song, she and two other celebrities mock Putin and Medvedev for playing political switcheroo. 
essentially exchanging roles in government. This white album can be downloaded for free. We have a link at theworld.org. That's it for our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for tuning in. Сказали бы честно, что у вас не то, что тихо стояли вы у руля, и нами не правили даже и дня. Мы все правознаем, мы видим насквозь, что были мы вместе, что будем мы... The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.